Chapter 7 The Blessed Family by Rich Lusk Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your life shall be like a fruitful vine, in the very heart of your house, your children, like olive plants, all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Psalm 128 Psalm 128, along with its counterpart, Psalm 127, is known as a family psalm. It is full of both wisdom and beauty, as it crystallizes the biblical vision of a household under the blessing of God. It might be easy to treat this psalm as a kind of verbal Norman Rockwell painting, with the family feasting together around the dinner table, with a huge turkey, and all the trimmings right in the center. But actually, if we unpack the imagery of this psalm as we should, we find there is nothing sentimental here. Indeed, the psalmist has provided us with a theologically rich and vibrantly practical model of family life that is uniquely biblical and covenantal in its origin, shape, and goal. Before delving into the psalm, it is crucial for us to put the family in its proper context. Where does family fit into a biblical view of the world? How important is the family anyway? Is the family all it's cracked up to be by the family values folks? Is it possible to overemphasize the family in our day? And how do our families and homes relate to the family and household of God, the church? We must understand. The one and only family that has ultimate significance is the family of God. The church is not just a collection of families, but is itself the family of God. Jesus makes it clear that his family, the church, takes precedence over the biological family, as well as over any kind of ethnic or national loyalty. Jesus calls his disciples away from their families, thus relativizing the importance of the biological family even in the middle of a deeply patriarchal society. In Matthew 4, Jesus calls James and John to be his followers, and, quote, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him, Matthew 4.22. They not only left their nets, meaning their occupation as fishermen, behind to become apostles, but they left their father behind as well. In following Jesus, they were becoming part of the new family he was forming around himself. In Mark 3, Jesus is told that his family members are out looking for him. Jesus says that whoever does the will of God, which means following him, is, quote, my brother and sister and mother, Mark 3, 31 through 34. Again, Jesus made it clear he was forming a new family, no longer defined in terms of kinship or blood, but rather in terms of loyalty to him. In Matthew 10, Jesus says he came to, quote, set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household, in quote, verses 35 through 36. Jesus is announcing that the kingdom of God is breaking into history and ripping the old world apart. In light of the dawning of the kingdom of God, all other attachments and relationships are relativized. There is a new society, a new family being formed, and if necessary, You have to be willing to leave everything else behind for Jesus' sake in order to enter his kingdom. Jesus severs the old ties, 
Our hope is that he reattaches them in a new way. To be sure, Jesus slays the ancient patriarchal family with its totalizing and often tyrannizing authority. But he also promises to renew family bonds so that spouses and parents and children can live harmoniously as fellow citizens in his kingdom. Thus, Jesus also sanctified marriage, Matthew 19, 1-10, and blessed children, Matthew 19, 13-14. In Jesus, husbandry and fatherhood can be restored to their original purpose and brought to perfection. The anti-family, or family as rival to the kingdom, passages are important. But they do not tell the whole story by themselves. The kingdom not only challenges those who would idolize the family, but the kingdom redeems the family as well. Depending on our family situation, one side or the other may have more relevance for us. Jesus may stand for or against a family, depending on the family's stances towards his kingdom. Certainly, the kingdom of God has ultimate primacy over everything. On the one hand, this means that even the natural family, which is obviously a God-created and ordained institution, becomes dispensable and disposable in light of the coming of the kingdom. If your family stands between you and Jesus, you must break ties with your family so you can adhere to Jesus. Just ask any Muslim convert to Christian faith how hard, but how necessary this is. On the other hand, there are clearly ways in which Jesus is radically pro-family and desires to bring our families in their entirety into his kingdom to make them recipients and agents of his grace. This doesn't always happen, but it is clearly held out as the ideal. Hence, the New Testament continues the Old Testament pattern of household salvation. This overarching framework is the context within which we must give a Christian reading and application of Psalm 128. The Bible has a lot to say about the family, but all too often we have failed to notice how it puts the family in this broader context of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is ultimate. Our families are penultimate. Our families are good, but they are not the greatest good. We should long for our families to be redeemed, whole and intact. But if that proves impossible, we should consider loyalty to Jesus and his family the highest priority. When we turn our attention to places in Scripture that address the family in a positive way, what do we find? Psalm 128 is a psalm that celebrates the blessings of family life when the family is ordered as God designs and commands. God is for this family, and this family is for Him. This psalm sketches a picture of what family life looks like inside the kingdom of God. It is written from the perspective of the husband and father as the head of his household responsible for its protection, provision, and well-being. As a result, I will primarily address my comments here to husbands and fathers. Men, listen up. The psalmist begins, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. This is a purposeful echo of the first psalm which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. We see in Psalm 1 that the key to blessedness is doing life God's way. The blessed life is found in submitting yourself to God's pattern, living by faith according to God's design. Psalm 128 may be viewed as a specific application of the principle of Psalm 1 to the realm of family life. This psalm shows us 
that the most important ingredient in a blessed family life is the faithfulness and godliness of the husband and father. If a man is not experiencing the blessing of God in his family life, it is not his wife's fault, nor is it the children's fault. It is the man's fault. The responsibility for securing God's blessing on the home rests on his shoulders. Every individual answers to God individually, but husbands and fathers also answer to God for their households as a whole. Psalm 128 profiles the God-fearing family man. What does it mean to fear God? The book of Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing God means seeing who God is and who you are in relation to Him. Fearing God leads to humility and maturity. The mature man knows how to manage his life according to God's word. He humbles himself before God and insists God knows best. He doesn't seek the path of least resistance or of instant popularity. Rather, he commits himself to obeying God because he knows he must ultimately answer to God not only for his own life, but for the state of his family. Men have a widespread problem in our culture today. Boys are growing up physically, but are failing to mature in other ways. They grow older without growing up. There has been a revolt against maturity among men in our culture. But, in reality, this is a revolt against the blessing of God. If you want God's blessing, you must seek to walk in His commandments, fearing and trusting Him always. And incidentally, no Christian woman ever regretted marrying a God-fearing man and wished she had married someone who didn't fear God instead. This is the kind of man for whom an unmarried Christian woman should look. A godly man measures his life's success in terms of obedience and faithfulness to God, no matter what it costs him. The godly man knows that success in his workplace is not worth it if it comes at the price of domestic failure. He knows success in any other domain means nothing if he does not have the blessing of God resting on his family. He knows the most important thing in life is seeking and securing God's blessing. Psalm 128.1 teaches that being a good family man starts with being a good Christian. What does the blessed man look like in familial relationships? In verse 3, the psalmist declares, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. The man may be the head, but she is the heart. A wife does not simply make the home. In a deep way, she is the home. She is the glory and heartbeat of the home. She is described here as a fruitful vine. What does it mean for her to be a vine? Vines produce grapes from which we get wine. This is a fitting picture of the godly woman who brings joy to her husband, even as wine makes the heart glad. The godly husband delights in his wife, and she feels his pleasure as she plays her role in the home. As she wraps her love around the home, enclosing it within herself, She fills it with joy and life. While the man is in charge of his family, his wife will actually do much more on a day-to-day basis to shape the environment and ethos of the home. What makes her a fruitful vine? She is well taken care of. Vines do not bear fruit unless they are nurtured. Paul unpacks this in Ephesians 5 when he commands husbands to nourish and cherish their wives the way Jesus does the church. Men, the meaning of this is plain. Your wife should feel like she is married to Jesus. That is the standard and goal for the godly man. 
Men, you must treat your wives the way Jesus treats the church. Ask yourself, how much grace, mercy, patience, and encouragement does Jesus offer his bride? To what lengths was he willing to go to demonstrate his love for her? How much does he forgive her and care for her? Does he love her with a cheap love or a costly love? Men, you must take Jesus as your model for husbandry. Does Jesus say to his church, I will only love you if you first meet my demands and expectations? No, Jesus always takes loving initiative with his bride. He does not say to his bride, I will do my part if and only if you do yours. No, Jesus does not demand change and growth as a condition of being loved. Rather, his love empowers growth and change in his bride. Does Jesus exalt himself over her and boss his bride around? No. Jesus came to deny himself. He came not to be served by the bride, but to serve her. Jesus comes with a service mindset in relation to his bride. How does Jesus deal with the fears and concerns of his bride? He does not mock her fears or exploit her insecurities. He shows her compassion and love, even when she is weak. Men, you must do the same. Husbands, do not take advantage of your wife's inclinations to serve, as many men do. Make it your aim to give to your wife, and you will find she outpaces your giving every time. I have never known a man who was able to outgive his wife, but if a man tries to do so, he is sure to have a very happy and blessed marriage. Husbands, your wife will be a fruitful vine when you are laying your life down for her again and again when you are nurturing her with your love and gentleness. Jesus-like love brings a woman security and joy. It calms her anxieties and gives her confidence. Men, the measure of your love for your wife must be Jesus' love for his bride. Don't settle for comparing yourself to a lesser standard. To do so is to sell yourself, and especially your wife, short. Rather, learn to die to your own agenda and become a servant in your home. Of course, this kind of sacrificial, self-giving love is just a special application of the kind of glad obedience and service every Christian should render, whatever his or her God-appointed role and station in life. Again we see, the key to being a good husband is simply being a good Christian. Frankly, a lot of men are knuckleheads when it comes to loving their wives. Men, you need to understand the burdens your wife is bearing. If your wife is raising small children, she has perhaps the most demanding and difficult job in the world. A bad day at the office is no match for a bad day at home. Your wife is carrying on a vital ministry to your children, and she needs your support. In Matthew 25, 31-46, Jesus says at the last day, He will praise His faithful servants, who have fed the hungry, clothed the naked and cared for the sick, because these deeds, done for the least of these, are done to him and for himself. Well, guess what, men? Your wives are carrying on Matthew 25 ministries all day long, day after day. Our wives are feeding hungry kids, clothing naked kids, and caring for sick kids all day long, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Jesus will praise her for it. She is doing a good work in his eyes. Husbands, you need to validate her, honor her, and praise her as well. If Jesus will praise her at the last day, you have to praise her right now.
Remember that if your wife is raising kids at home, she is doing something politically incorrect and radically countercultural in our day. She will not be receiving any support from the world around her. Thus, she needs the support and encouragement and help of her husband. She needs to know you value her labors. I heard an interesting story a while back. A pastor once invited people who were struggling with anger problems to meet with him after the worship service. Nineteen people showed up, and every single one was a mother with young children in the home. My guess is that these moms were really not less satisfied than the rest of the congregation. They just had a harder job that was pushing them past the breaking point. These moms were struggling with anger because they were not being tended to and cultivated the way they should have been. Maybe if their husbands were more patient and helpful, these moms would not have been on the edges often. Men, the point is this. In any ordinary set of circumstances, if your wife is not flourishing and fruitful, you are the one with the problem. Don't try to fix her. Fix yourself, and she'll begin to bear abundant fruit again. What about the blessed man and his children? What is the blessed man like as a father? The psalmist says that your sons will be like olive plants around your table. What does it mean for our children to be little olives? The olive plant is very significant in scriptures. In Genesis 8, as the floodwaters are receding, Noah sends out a dove. The dove returns with an olive branch as the waters begin to part and the dry land reemerges. Thus, the olive becomes a symbol of the new creation. The olive means God's warfare against humanity is over, and peace now reigns. Later in the scripture, we find the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place in the temple were carved from olive wood, 1 Kings 6.23. A holy place calls for holy wood, and so olive wood is used. But there are additional layers to this olive symbolism. Olive oil, the oil flowing through the plant, is presented as a symbol of the Spirit and is used in the anointing of priests and kings. Judges 9.9 suggests that olives are the rightful kings of the plant world. Jesus gives a crucial prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24. The great events of the gospel took place on or in the immediate vicinity of the Mount of Olives, and thus, in a grove of olive trees, Jesus' suffering in Gethsemane, which means olive press, betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension all occur in an olivet environment. Jesus was likely crucified on an olive tree, given that Golgotha was located on the Mount of Olives. This is because the place of the cross is the new altar and must correspond to the most holy place. Jesus also ascended from earth up into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Olive trees are symbolic connection points with the celestial realm. Jesus is the ultimate olive tree. But of course, this means his church must be signified by olives as well. In Romans 11, the olive tree is used to symbolize God's holy people, Israel, in both Old Covenant and New Covenant forms. Natural branches from the olive tree, the Jews, may be broken out because of unbelief, while wild olive branches, Gentiles, may be grafted in by faith. But either way, the olive plant clearly symbolizes the covenant community. The patriarchs are olive trees, we are olive branches. All of this taken together is very suggestive. The olive plant is clearly the holiest plant in the Bible's symbolic economy. There are priestly, kingly, messianic, new creation, and heavenly associations, 
not to mention connections with the cross and the spirit. The multi-layered symbolism of the olive contains virtually every element of the gospel. What the psalmist is saying about the status of our children, then, should be clear. The children of the blessed man are holy. They belong to God and are loved by God. They are part of his people and his new creation. They are kings and priests with us. They have the oil of the Spirit flowing within them. They share in Christ's sacrifice and are called to live sacrificially. They are part of the church community, but must preserve in faith and repentance. These truths about the status and identity of our children before God serve as the foundation for everything else the Bible has to say about parenting. Fathers, you must recognize these truths about your children. You must count and treat your children as members of the people of God from infancy onwards, until and unless they prove otherwise. They are saints because God makes them saints. We do not wait for them to grow up and choose to become olive branches. Rather, God declares and promises to us that they are already little olive plants even in their youth. Our children are not nauseous weeds. They are olive plants in God's field and must be raised accordingly so they will be strong and fruitful olive trees when fully grown. Of course, I don't have to tell you this is deeply countercultural even in the church. Some parents feel it is completely within their rights to impose piano lessons and swimming practices on their children. But when it comes to religious things, they say they want their children to make their own decision. But God tells parents they must impose a religious identity on their children, a specifically Christian religious identity. God says our children are His. He has claimed them from the beginning. We are to raise them up in His way. Beginning with baptism, we are to give our children to God and claim the promises He makes to and about them. The United Nations adopted a children's rights declaration a few years ago called the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Every member nation, except the United States and Somalia, an odd pair to say the least, accepted the document. Included in the document's list of every child's rights is the right of the child to make his own decision about religion. Think about the astounding implications of that for Christian parents. This UN document, ratified by nearly 200 nations in the world, essentially makes infant baptism an international crime. Why? Because children baptized in infancy have a Christian identity imposed on them from the earliest days of their lives. The document contradicts the practice of infant baptism because baptized children are made Christians before they can openly and independently consent. The document is well-intentioned and, no doubt, does many good things to curb global abuse of children, but it is not acceptable to any covenantal Christian who wants to raise his children up in the way of the Lord. What the world calls indoctrination and brainwashing, Paul calls raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We do not wait for our children to get older and then hope they choose the Lord. Instead, we tell them from their earliest days that God has already chosen them and appointed them to bear much fruit. We know that our children can never be religiously neutral, but God has graciously promised to include them in His covenant. He is our God and the God of our children. Lord willing, they will grow up never remembering a day when they did not know, trust, and love their Heavenly Father. The blessed man will not accept what the world says about his children. He will believe what God says about his children. God says they are olive plants, holy and beloved. 
Thus, the godly man will water his children in baptism and fertilize them with the scriptures and the Lord's Supper so they can bring forth juicy olives full of the oil of the Spirit. We are called to believe this about our children. Our children are not weeds in need of uprooting, but olive plants in need of nurturing and watering so they will bring forth spiritual fruit. The blessed man knows the starting point of all faithful parenting is receiving our children as olive plants and believing what God says about them. Godly fathering flows from faith in God's promises, which means, once again, the key to being a good dad is being a good Christian. The imagery of Psalm 128.3 meshes well with the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew 18.5, Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What does it mean to receive a child in Jesus' name? It means to receive him as one who bears the name of Jesus, not because of anything in the child by nature, but because the child is graciously included in God's covenant. Note that Jesus used similar language for his apostles in Matthew 10, when he said, He who receives you receives me. The apostles carry the presence of Jesus with them. They are in union with Jesus and represent him so that those who receive them actually receive Jesus. But now we find the same is true for covenant children. Receiving them in Jesus' name is a way of receiving Jesus himself. It is as though, when God gives us children, he is sending us apostles of Jesus. Will we receive them as apostles, as dignitaries and ambassadors of Jesus' kingdom? Or will we say, no, you're too young to represent Jesus? The blessed man of Psalm 128 knows his children are holy and filled with the Spirit. He knows his job is to cultivate the grace given to his children so they will grow in grace and not become covenant breakers. On the surface, Psalm 128 does not seem to give us any tips or techniques for parenting. It does not say anything explicit about discipline, education, or other matters that dominate most of our books on parenting. There is really only one thing that Psalm 28 teaches us about parenting, the spiritual identity of our children but this turns out to be the most practical thing we can know about our children. Our children are olive plants, like every other member of the people of God. They are to be treated and counted as fellow kingdom citizens and fellow heirs of the grace of eternal life. Following how-to formulas will not get you the child-rearing results you desire, apart from trusting God's promises and declarations about your children. By starting with what God says, we are set free to do what God says to do by faith. If we believe the promises of God about our children, then we will learn to love, discipline, teach, and nurture them by faith. Blessed parenting is by faith from beginning to end. Finally, if there is a tip or technique for parents in Psalm 128, it's this. The blessed family eats together. They feast and converse together around the table. Just as the table is central in the church, so it is central in the family. The blessed man will teach his olive plants how to participate in the family meal with courtesy, respect for others, self-discipline, service, and love. The culture of the table becomes the culture of the home, which in turn becomes the culture of the family's life in all they do. Culture always flows downstream from the table. The godly man will remember that and plan his mealtimes accordingly. There is obviously much more that can be said about the godly family, 
and the godly family man from Psalm 128, not to mention its companion piece, Psalm 127. But hopefully these remarks are sufficient to give a thumbnail sketch of what covenant parenting should look like on the ground, which is where it counts. For the blessed man knows mere knowledge is not enough. He must lead his family by putting into practice all he has learned from the Word of God. Get to work, men.